Hey, thanks to Slack for sponsoring today's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Always a pleasure to be with you, Allison. Well, we are lucky because we have a special guest in the studio today. Morgan Housel is back, and he's going to share his list of dangerous words in finance. <laughs> We're also going to answer your question about holding individual stocks in a 529 plan. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers. And this week's question comes from Luke on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, we're on Twitter, so follow us at Answers Podcast please, if you'd be so kind. Luke asks, can you invest in individual stocks with a 529 plan? Or is it like a 401k that lets you invest in index funds only? Well, Luke, the answer is no. You cannot buy individual stocks in a 529 plan. 529 plan is administered by states, usually offered by some financial services organization, and the choices are just mutual funds. Plus, you can generally only make two investment changes in the course of a year. So, you can only buy funds and you can't do a lot of switching in and out. If you want to buy stocks for a college education, the way to go is the Coverdell Education Savings Account. It's just like a regular old brokerage account. You can buy stocks, bonds, CDs, all kinds of mutual funds and ETFs. Um, just like a 529, the money does grow tax free as long as it's used for qualified higher education expenses for college. But also with the Coverdell, it can also be used for qualified expenses for elementary school or secondary school. So it has a little more flexibility that way. There are some other limitations on it that the 529 doesn't have. So, for example, you can put tens of thousands of dollars in a 529. Coverdell, only $2,000 a year. Hmm. There are also income limitations on the Coverdell, although you can get around that by just giving the money to the kid, and then the kid opens the account, him or herself, unless the kid also is making tens of thousands of dollars and they have income limitations. Also, with the 529, there aren't that many age restrictions, but with a Coverdell, you can't contribute to it once the kid is 18, and the money must be taken out at age 30. With a 529, the money can kind of be used for anyone in the family, right? Is that the same with the cover? Yes. Yeah, so there's always a down. named beneficiary, but you can always always transfer the money to someone else in the family, another sibling, cousin, someone like that. Now the good news is you don't have to go either or. So I think it actually makes sense to, especially if you're a motley fool listener or reader, you love picking individual stocks. Go ahead and max out the Coverdell with the two thousand, and then put any other money that you want to save in a five twenty nine. That way. You have the best of both worlds. If you start young enough, when a kid is you know, one, two, or three, you're putting $2,000 a year away, by the time they go to college, it's probably enough to pay for one year's worth of education. So, that's worth something. Thanks to Slack for sponsoring today's episode. Slack allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app that works across your desktop, phone, or whatever device you work on. All the cool kids are using it, including this show and The Motley Fool in general. <laughs> if you've listened to this show before, you know we do most of our work on Slack. It is the lifeblood of The Motley Fool. This is a totally non-scientific poll that I did, but at, earlier today when I was kind of like planning out the episode, I was like, I wonder when I turn around, we have a very open office, I wonder if as I turn around, how many people are actually going to be actively in Slack at this exact moment. And so I kind of did a 
360 and at least half of the people's screens I could see, they were in Slack at that exact moment. So yes, this company runs on Slack. Probably most of those people were actually in the dad joke channel yeah, because exactly. Slack isn't just about being productive. Or it's also about bringing people together over shared interests like puns. Doppelganger. There's a bro ho ho channel for Christmas songs. There's all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so while you listeners don't get to be in the Motley Fool Slack ecosystem, I will share with you a recent joke that was shared on the dad joke Slack nice. channel. Uh, you might. Are you guys on the Dad Joke Slack channel? No, I would be too distracted. Oh, you would love it. I know it. that's the problem. So it's. Uh, it was a picture of a tombstone, and in it was carved, "Rest in peace, boiled water. You will be missed." <laughs> this is the kind of jokes you get out of Dad Jokes. You would love that channel. But maybe it's best if you do stay away. Yeah. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at Slack.com. Because we do work, we do work too. Dad jokes and work. Morgan Housel, behavioral finance expert, recurring guest, and fan favorite, is back. For those of you who don't follow his every move, Morgan now works at the Collaborative Fund. It's a VC fund based in New York. But he's here today to talk about some of the most dangerous words in finance. Morgan, thanks for joining us. You're back. Thanks, I'm here. It is true. Yes, you I are. can verify that. He is here in studio, and the word, the or actually, some of these are two words. Whatever. Yeah. Phrases. How common phrases. That? Okay, common phrases. All right, phrase number one. The dangerous phrase for your portfolio number one is risk tolerance. Yeah. So, basically, all investors, when they are setting up their portfolio, they need to have some sense of what their risk tolerance is. If the market goes down... X in the future. If it goes down 20%, how are you going to feel about that? If it goes down 50%, how are you going to feel about that? And I think most people are pretty bad at assessing their risk tolerance uh, because when you try to think, how am I going to feel in the future, I think you're really just giving a reflection of how you feel today. So when the market is going up a lot, you think, you know, let's say it's the late 1990s or it's 2007, we've had a big market run up, or like we have today. A lot of people think they have a high risk tolerance because they've been investing for several years and it's gone well so far. So you know they they really like the stock market and they tend to think, oh, if the market were to fall twenty percent, I would view that as a buying opportunity and I would get in. That's how they assess their risk going forward. And then when that twenty percent decline actually comes, that fifty percent decline actually comes, they realize that that's not the case at all. This hurts. They want out. They want nothing to do with this. They want to sell. So I think what's What's dangerous, I think, is projecting your future risk tolerance based on just how you think you'll feel. And I think the proper way to assess your risk tolerance is to say, how have I actually behaved in the past? Like in 2008, when stocks plunged, if you got nervous and sold, then you have a lower risk tolerance today than you do, regardless if, 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 if you think you have a high risk tolerance today, but you sold in 2008, you have a low risk tolerance. Like your past behavior is going to be a much better indication of your future behavior than any sort of subjective assessment that you think about your moods or your emotions. But there are all these quizzes online where they're like, I'll give you $1,000 today, or you get to save 500 I don't know. I'm, that's they're, that's they're a horrible hypo- example. But. Yeah, because they're all hypothetical. It's all, it's all if I give you 5000 today, and then you flip a coin, and you, you know, whatever those yeah. quizzes say, it's all hypothetical. <laughs> like, you can't know how you're going to feel about seeing your actual retirement account cut in half until you experience it. And judging on how you reacted in the past, that's probably how you're going to react in the future. 
All right. The second word, very similar to the first, the second dangerous phrase is just risk. Yeah, we talk about risks a lot. And in financial textbooks, risk almost exclusively is defined as volatility. If a stock is volatile, it goes up and up and down a lot, it's really risky. But in the real world, for most people's uh, you know, the time between now and their financial goal, risk has very little to do with volatility. It has to do with by the time I'm ready to retire, am I gonna have enough money to retire? And a lot of that is is based off of earning enough return. About you know, are 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 you investing in the right securities? Do you are you taking enough? Uh, you know, do you have enough of your portfolio in in stocks? So risk, I think, in financial textbooks is defined as short term volatility. For most people, it's long term returns. From the time between now and my goals, am I going to earn a high enough return? Uh, so if you're investing for the next 20 years, risk for you is not earning a high enough return over the next 20 years. Risk has almost nothing to do with whether the Dow is going to go down next month. But that's how we talk about risk most of the time. Yeah, for me, actually, risk is, is ultimately predictability and, and in relation to a certain goal. So if I want real predictability about the amount of money I'm going to have in 20 years, I can do that. I can know exactly how much I'm going to have. I would just have to invest in cash. Because I'm not going to get any return, but I can easily run through a calculator and say, oh, if you invest this much each month, you'll have this much in 20 years. Yeah. However, that means I'm not going to have a whole lot of money because I'm not going to get much of a return. If I want to go for that higher return, I got to go for something that has a higher potential return, but it's less predictable. The stock market is less predictable. Even the bond market is less predictable. But I'll be able to have a potentially higher return. So, how then, how do you keep risk from being a dangerous word? In your portfolio, I think it's focusing on your. See, that's a good question because it gets back to what I was, was going to say, which is uh, risk is different for everybody. You know, if someone is is two years from retirement or in retirement, their view and what is risky for them is going to be totally different for someone who is in their twenties saving for retirement. But it's often not presented that way. It gets back to we still think of risk as what is the Dow going to do over the next six months. But for two different people, who is you know, one's in retirement and one's 40 years from retirement, risk is totally different for them. So I think when you asked, uh, you know, how, how do you keep risk from from being a dangerous word for you? It's just focusing on your own goals and objectives, without getting too caught up about what other financial professionals might think the definition of risk is. All right, the third phrase is financial plan. What? Yeah, see, I, bro, as a certified financial planner. Uh, is actually swinging a baseball bat at me. Bro, get down. Get, stop that. Don't hurt the guest. I'll, I'll let him say his piece. We'll see what happens. No, I think you know that I'm sure it's controversial and I think a lot of financial planners will will do the the right thing in this situation. But the danger with financial planning is it can give you a false assumption, a false sense of security that you can since you've planned out the future, that the future is going to play out in that way that you planned it. Where in reality, I think the most important part of a financial plan is planning on that plan not going as planned. <laughs> yes, and pay me $2,000 for that, please. <laughs> right. But the future is always going to be uncertain, both in terms of market returns and what's going on in your own lifestyle, your own health and your own job security or your spouse's health and job security, not to mention stock market returns and whether we're going to have recessions on the year that you plan on retiring. So there's a, a, so many different outcomes that could play out, so many different potential outcomes. And if your financial plan is based off of one outcome, if your plan is the market is going to return 7% a year over the next 15 years and that's going to give me enough money I need to retire that's when it gets dangerous it's when you it's when you need to rely on a specific set 
of outcomes occurring uh, to meet your goals. Is it, that's kind of the the danger zone of financial planning in my mind. In my mind, and a good financial plan, planner won't do that. You know, there'll will be a range of potential right. outcomes that are within uh, a, a reasonable band of how things are likely to play out in the future that will set you up to you know to meet your goals and retire. Right. A good financial plan actually has a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. And I right. actually even have a document for this for myself. Like, okay, here's here's a likely scenario of what how things are going to play out in my life in terms of my job, in terms of my portfolio, in terms of my kids going to school and all that stuff. But then here are some other things. What happens if the Motley Fool goes under? What happens if I decide I want to do another profession and, and go back to school? What happens if something happens to me or my wife? So I have set up some sort of safeguards and safety nets for all these situations, knowing that the future is unknowable, but within a reasonable expectation of a range of outcomes, will be okay. So, is keeping this word less dangerous in your life, is it about just revisiting your plan every few years? Or is it more about just being willing to roll with it and, and not be like, this is my set-in-stone plan? It's more, I think, thinking about the world and your own goals in terms of probabilities and percentages rather than absolutes. Rather than saying, I'm going to do this for the next 20 years, and the market is going to do this for the next 20 years, it's realizing that there's a huge range of outcomes in that situation. Yeah, there's no question that studies have shown that people who do some sort of financial planning, who use some sort of retirement calculator, those folks do have a higher chance of accomplishing their goals. They tend to have higher net worths. There's a value to sitting down and figuring out, okay, hey, generally speaking, if the, the future looks anything like the past, if I save 15% of my income, I'll be okay. That's helpful and that's useful, especially if at that point you're only saving 3% of your income. Yeah. That's good. But that doesn't mean just because you do that, you're guaranteed to be able to retire on time. Who knows what Social Security will look like? Who knows what your job will look like? So you, every year you have to reevaluate, but there's still a value to sitting down and thinking these things through. All right. So you guys aren't going aren't gonna to fight anymore? No, it's no be we, okay. might. we might. We might. <laughs> Keep an eye. I may need Rick to, to come in here at some point and keep you guys apart. All right. Fourth dangerous phrase is uncertainty. Yeah. So I think uh, we, we, we talk a lot about uncertainty. Financial pundits talk a lot about uncertainty. You just got done talking about uncertainty. Well, no, well, this is, this is a different type. <laughs> this is a different type. A lot of times when they talk about uncertainty, it's because uh, we're at a point where people say like, there's a lot of uncertainty over oil prices, there's a lot of uncertainty about right. regulations. What are tax rates going to be in the next year? There's uncertainty over tax rates. And that gives the impression that in at any time in the past we knew what oil prices were yeah. going to do in the future, <laughs> or at any time in the past we knew what future tax rates. We never know what those things are going to do in the future, but we pretend that we do at times. We pretend that there are periods of low uncertainty that we can see far into the future, and we know what oil prices are going to do over the next five years, and we know what tax rates are going to be over the next five years. But I think you're just fooling yourself if you believe that. So I really don't think there's anything. There's a such thing as more or less uncertainty. There's just different perceptions of optimism and pessimism, and a lot of times this gets down to politics because most of the time when we're talking about uncertainty, it's uncertainty about regulations, uncertainty about future tax rates, and like I said, uncertainty about stimulus packages, and. A lot of times, it's just code for I, I, I disagree with the the party that's controlling these <laughs> these policies, right? Uh, and or or an explanation of just what the market is doing. You'll see the, one of my the phrases I hate most is the market hates uncertainty. Right. Well, there's always uncertainty, so the market must always be unhappy because there's no such thing as 
certainty. So people use that term as an explanation for why the Dow dropped today, or it's down for the year. The Dow dropped because the Dow dropped, because it didn't do what we... Well, the Dow dropped because the market hates uncertainty, and people are apparently selling because things are not certain. Things are never certain. It's just always the way things are. Yeah, I think there's probably being um, one of those daily market beat reporters who have to report like three times a day on why the market did what they did must be like living on like the third level of hell. I think they have like it's a magic eight ball where they just sort of shake, shake it and it. see which one turns yeah. up. Oh, today we're going to talk about uncertainty. Right? Yeah. Oh, brutal. All right, next one and final one. The final dangerous phrase for your portfolio is objective analysis. I think it's dangerous because it. We want to believe it exists, but I really don't believe it does. And a lot of people think if, if someone has the right incentives and the right background and the right training that they can provide really objective analysis about the stock market or the bond market, you know, where stocks are heading, or analysis about different companies. But everybody, no matter how hard they try, is going to be biased to their own life circumstances. So what I mean by that, if you were born in the 1950s, what the stock market did in your 20s, was really bad. Basically, the stock market went nowhere. Even after inflation and dividends, the stock market went nowhere in your 20s. So, those are your formative years where you're forming a view about what the stock market is capable of doing and whatnot. If you were born in the 1930s, then what the stock market did in your 20s and 30s, one of your formative years, was the stock market did incredibly well during that period. Uh, so, so, just based off of when you were born, you're going to have a totally different view of the stock market during your formative years that will bias you for the rest of your life. One, one other example of that, people who lived through the Great Depression, especially in their formative working years, were really risk-averse for the rest of their life. They didn't want to take on a lot of debt, they, didn't, they weren't big investors at all, because they were biased to their own history. Whereas someone who, uh, who came of age in the 1990s, when everything was booming, when unemployment was low and the market was booming, is, is probably going to be significantly more risk-taking, more willing to take on risk than someone who was born during, who, who, who came of age during a period when the economy was, was really slow. So everyone is biased to their own history, and it's really hard to uh, to look past that. We talk a lot, a lot about this too. We have a Motley Fool business in Germany right now. Uh, it's a completely different investing culture in Germany than they have in the United States. It's only a little bit exaggerating to say that Germans want nothing to do with the stock market. <laughs> and interesting about that too is that the German stock market has performed almost just as well as the U.S. stock market has over the last 50 years. They've both done extraordinarily well. So the Germans have a local stock market that has done really well, and they still want almost nothing to do with it. And why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of which is that in the last hundred years, the German economy has been reduced to rubble twice. And that has a big impact on society's willingness to take risk. So even though the stock market does really well, they don't want anything to do with it because it's a risk-averse culture. Versus the United States, we can't get enough of it because we've had a totally different experience over the last century. So our parents and our grandparents kind of instill a different sense of what the stock market is capable of doing over time. So it doesn't really have to do with analysis in the sense that we're looking at the data and looking at companies and forecasting what they're going to do in the future. It's just we're kind of anchored to our own history, and it's hard for people to look past that. So, where do you look for objective analysis, or how do you um, try to find the objective analysis in bro, a world where there's nothing objective? Bro, mainly. That's where I, <laughs> Just ask him how he's feeling. No, I think what's important... I'm a robot. I have no emotions. Uh, this is important for all investing decisions, is to talk to people who are from different backgrounds than you are. People who are in different... Uh, you know, 
you know, from, from, from different upbringings, from different parts of the economy who are in different states of life than you are, to get different pers- perspectives from different generations, uh, from people who work in different industries. You know, as, as much as you can widen your sphere of influence, I think, is how you get around to the extent that you can, but it's, it's difficult. But that's how you can sort of uh, get around being anchored to your own past. Nobody likes doing that, though. We only like to be, have like like our answers. ideas confirmed, and, yeah. and we don't like hearing about when people disagree with us, what well, we already think. That's why, that's why being rich is harder than... Harder than it looks, maybe. It is, baby. And one of the things that's why we're still here. That's <laughs> one of the things I saw when I was a financial advisor is that people have certain personalities. They're either conservative, they're like the Germans. Not only are conservative, like our Germans conservative in terms of investing, they hate debt. Credit card use is nowhere near the way it is in the US. Um, and then there are people who just love taking risks and more aggressive. And the thing about the stock market is, if you want to say, well, let's look at the facts, you can find any facts to support any opinion you have about the stock market. Right. There have yeah. been some really bad periods, and there have been some really good periods. So, I mean, all, every financial advisor has that chart from Ibbotson that shows, well, look, if you just buy stocks here and hold for the long term, it'll work out fine. But that doesn't work, because anyone can look at the stock market and say, yeah, but then there's this period here. Yeah. So, there's just this general, I think, inclination, and it might have been from childhood or, or something like that. I remember asking a friend of mine how she became frugal because I know she didn't learn it from her parents. And she said, well, when you have your electricity turned off every once in a while growing up, you learn to be a little better with money. So you grew up in that experience, and I don't know how she invests, but I'm, I'm going to bet it's pretty conservative, and she will find evidence in the, stock, in the historical returns of the stock market to show that, you know what, the stock market maybe is not all that it's cracked up to be. I will say one difference mm-hmm. for kids growing up, maybe over the last 10 years than when I was growing up, and I'm 46, is that the stock market is a bigger part of people's lives. Yeah. When I was growing up, there was no CNBC, and, it, mm-hmm. and a lot of people still had the defined benefit pensions. Not, still not most people, but the 401k was relatively new. Most people still didn't have IRAs, so it, wasn't where, it didn't have the same sort of everyone's investing feel that we have now. So when like 1987 happened, and the stock market dropped, I think it was like 22% in one day, it, wasn't like, it didn't affect everybody nowadays. With most people having a 401k and an IRA, if the market were to drop 22% one day, I think everybody would be sort of moaning and groaning about it. It's a much bigger deal. Yeah. I think I read one time that uh, 1929, when the market crashed before the Great Depression, only 5% of Americans owned stocks. Hmm. So it was a big deal for those 5%. Uh, and, and then, of course, the Great Depression affected almost everybody. But back then, it was just a totally different game of who the stock market influenced. I wrote the other day the Roth IRA is actually four years younger than Amazon.com. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, this is all, it's all a new game we're playing. This is a new game, but of course, our dear listeners, you can win this game just by listening to our podcast. So, aren't you guys so smart? Yeah? We certainly hope so. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. And if you're like me, dear listeners, and have enjoyed reading Morgan's columns on Fool.com over the years, the good news is that you can still get his insights over on the Collaborative Funds blog. It's at collaborativefund.com slash blog. He's also on Twitter, at Morgan Housel. Today, I was just on the internet, you know, going down whatever rabbit hole of internetness, and I stumble upon this article about Johnny Depp and his 
Oh my gosh. Financial it's a mess. Disa- it's a disaster. It's a disaster. And I turn around because, again, it's, a, well, because it's an open office at the Motley Fool and you can just turn around and strike up a conversation with anyone, which I do all the time because I'm an extrovert. And so I like turn around and I just yell to no one in general, have you guys heard about Johnny Depp? And no one had heard about this. So anyway, today we're going to play a game called Johnny Depp spent how much on what? <laughs> I think you should call it Johnny's debt. Oh, uh, nice. Hashtag dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for those of you who don't know, Johnny Depp is embroiled in a lawsuit with his former business associates. I don't business know, ex- manager, manager types of folks. Yeah, yeah. It's called the management group. So that's not a vague enough title. to Anyway. Depp says that as a result of their gross misconduct, they steered him towards high-interest loans, they failed to make loan and tax payments, and anyway, as a result, they cost him tens of millions of dollars. Then they countersued, saying that he owes them money, and that... um, Due to this is so funny how they said this. Due to an extravagant lifestyle, quote, Depp is responsible for his own financial waste. <laughs> financial waste. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm like laughing, but like it's insane. How so? Basically, Depp has largely squandered the $650 million that he has made over the course of his career. Mm. So, regardless of who wins in court, everyone else is already a winner because we get to see a laundry list of Johnny Depp's expenses. (laughs) And I want to thank New York Magazine site Vulture for this fun list. So... All How right. do you want to do this? Do you want me to do? Do you want to do true or false? Do you want to guess at the figure? I'll the guess at the figure because I have I I've read a little bit about it, so okay. we'll see if I can remember. Johnny Depp spends X amount of dollars annually for his forty-person staff. Oh my gosh, forty people, three million. Oh, very close. 3.6 million. Wow. In addition to his personal assistance and around the clock security <laughs> detail for him and his children, each of his residences is also fully staffed. Yeah. Um, I can understand the security, but it, oh my goodness gracious. Yeah, he's got like 15 residences. Well, see, that, that's ridiculous. Johnny Depp spends X amount of dollars on wine per month. Oh, boy. My daughter asked me how much a bottle of wine was yesterday, and I'm like, I have no idea. A hundred thousand. Oh no, way way too much. He spends th- still. He spends a lot. Thirty thousand dollars per month on wine. According to Business Insider, the wine is flown in from all over the world for personal consumption. Um, I was just gonna say, is it an investment or is he like have it? But no, he just drinks it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's a business expense. It's a business expense. <laughs> I mean, you've seen those pirate movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's drunk the whole time. All right, Johnny Depp spent X amount of dollars for a specially made cannon to blast Hunter S. Thompson's ashes over Aspen, Colorado. 50000 So, this is pretty funny. All right, so in the lawsuit, the management group claims that Johnny Depp spent $3 million what? on a cannon to blast Hunter S. Thompson's ashes over Aspen. However... 
Johnny Depp claimed that this was just another example of how negligent the the firm was in accounting for his money because he said he actually spent five million. So, <laughs> I'm dumber than you thought. This is so funny. Is uh, anyway? I thought that was amazing. So also, so the countersuit also says that Depp spent seventy five million on buying and updating fourteen re- uh, residences. He owns more than two hundred art pieces of art, including Klimt, Warhol, Modigliani. And he kept a memorabilia collection in 12 storage facilities. It doesn't say how much this memorabilia is worth, but they said that he spent $1 million archiving it. Oh, my goodness gracious. Doesn't yeah. he have, like, islands, too? He has, like, a group of he's islands. Got, yeah, he's got, like, three islands in the Bahamas, which were surprisingly worth not that much money. I was like, I'll take an it's island. It's like $5 million or something like yeah, that. Yeah, for three islands in the Bahamas? Ugh, come on. Come let's on. all let's all go in together. I think we should. <laughs> they might be on sale soon. Yeah, I, I know a guy who's <laughs> trying to unload some. So, anyway, there you go. Johnny Depp. It just goes to show that... The fastest way to not be a millionaire is to spend $650 million, <laughs> and then some, probably. Don't you want to just talk to him, like, like, I just, like, what were you thinking? What are you thinking? Do you think that you will always make money? Maybe that's yeah. it. I mean, he's been doing this since he was a kid. Well, like, uh, like what was his first, what was the show? Jump? 21 Jump yeah, Street, yeah. 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 So, he, I mean, he's lived most of his life being very famous and very, very wealthy. You just must imagine that he will continue to keep making yeah, money. Yeah, I think so. Because well, they they had um, the Hollywood Reporter, Wall Street Journal, and then Vulture's written about it a lot, um, which was a fascinating. It was fascinating to read about uh, in some of his emails that the management company released. Um, that he would say, "We have to buy this house. I'll just tell my agent to go get me a deal on a movie, and I'll make enough money, and we'll, we have to buy this house." Like they- that explains the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Not all of them are winners. No. But anyway, so that's how Johnny Depp's doing. And I think most of our Answers listeners are doing uh, much better than you. I was going to say, it's quite possible that we have higher net worths at this point when you talk about assets minus liabilities than Johnny Depp. That's the show. I want to thank Morgan for joining us. Our email is answers at fool.com. The show is edited scissor-handedly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.